important name to talk like this. Mm-mm-mm. Um, in Australia. Yeah, totally in Australia, exactly. Um, and off even some of the Asian culture stuff we bring into it is even more so like the pride and the, like my dad's gonna find it pretty hard to watch the show, I reckon. Yeah, right. Cause I go into like, um, I go into like religion and why I left the church and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Like I give it, yeah. yeah. So that's a whole other, um, Basically, Joel's dad, the other guy I'm going to share with, his dad was an alcoholic, him going up, and my dad was a preacher. So we have two, but yeah, we're, right. we're like really close And if friends. they swapped over, now your dad's the alcoholic? <laughs> nah, <laughs> no way. His dad's still, it's funny, his dad's still a big drinker, my dad's still a preacher. Yeah, right. So nothing, it's not, it's not like a show where we provide this happy ending or anything. No. I think that's, we're kind of bored of that narrative. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the idea that something is actually going to change. Yeah, I think there's more, it's more about like, the concept of our show is more like owning your own shit and and accepting, you know, accepting what you've become and why you became that way, mm. which is so much nature versus nurture. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and somehow the way that you understand what you are and where you are and your place within everything is given to you somehow. You inherit mm. that. Absolutely. And it's mostly shit. Yeah. It's mostly bullshit. Totally. That you need to then reframe yeah absolutely that's that's it's kind of like a little bit what our show's about really is like how we sort of became it's sort of funny like the trail the um the tagline of the poster is like musicians like what we went through as musicians to reach our peak but we don't really feel like that that's just like something that the people put on there we feel like it's more like what we went through to just even be on the journey we're on you know yeah yeah um yeah cool uh, all right, so I'm going to say hello, everybody. Welcome to Wombat Radio. Today we're in Karama. That's right. And we're talking with James Mungahig. Welcome, James. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Do you want to say, so the three questions for Wombat Radio is what, how, why? Yep. What do you do? What's your journey? So what I do now is I'm a music producer living back in my hometown of Darwin, Northern Territory, but I've spent sort of the last 10 years on the road. Mm-hmm. And I mostly now, I sort of do like, I make records, a bit of project management, and sort of look after a few artists as well. But my, I guess my primary thing is I'm a music producer, bass player. <laughs> awesome. And Why, why Darwin? Basically, I lived in Melbourne. Um, so I have a group that I started from here called Sierra with yeah. another singer, Katie Baker. And we, we sort of released a song in 2000 and maybe 10 now, 2011. And it did, like it got a lot of airplay on Triple J. Went onto high rotation and suddenly we were getting offers from festivals around the country. And what we quickly realized is the cost of touring from Darwin was just yeah. going to be ridiculous. Even though we were getting like, you know, reasonable fees that would cover flights and accommodation, which is kind of all the band can dream of in mm. their life, really. <laughs> yeah, um, to cover costs. Yeah, to, cover, <laughs> to, to sort of not start your career massively in the red. Yeah. But we realized really quickly that we, we signed to a Sydney label called Elephant Tracks, yeah, the home yeah. of The Herd and Hermitude, um, Aussie Butler, you know, a whole, a whole crew of um, sort of Australian hip-hop artists to a degree. And we, they're in Sydney, so we um, realised we wanted to be down that area on the East mm. Coast, which 
sort of translated to Katie spending most of her time around the Brisbane um, Northern Rivers area and myself spending most of my time in Melbourne and basically finding that touring from those regions was a lot cheaper. Also, we were making the records in those places. I think Darwin still to this day has quite limited studio spaces and we use a lot of synthesizers on the album. I think, the, you know, in I mean, I'm sure like in North Fitzroy, there's like hundreds of synthesizers, like yeah, yeah, yeah. not just because of the hipster revolution, but just generally there's more gear, more options. And I also had this feeling that I didn't want to just be a good band from Darwin. I wanted to make sure I could go to those sort of other scenes and be like, feel like we were cutting it there, not just because we we're from the Northern Territory. So even though during the whole Seattle time, I, I'd often you know, announced to the crowd that we're Seattle from Darwin, Northern Territory. I wanted to make sure that we were taken seriously mm. on a sort of international level. So it felt like, you know, really positive and healthy to live down there for that time. And last year in May, 2016, I came up to work on a project out in Nooka. Mm. And I've sort of been working on and off with Skinny Fish Music for about 15 years now. So just in between, you know, my own sort of career stuff, I've been working, doing projects with them. and. As soon as I got back in May last year, I just decided I didn't want to catch a plane for three or four months. Yeah. And in a weird way, I didn't even plan to move back. It just sort of happened. Yeah. And the, um, I started feeling like, yeah, I really want to give, put some energy into my hometown. And, and that, you know, I still spend a bit of time down south now. But I just feel like Darwin has such a good rhythm and there's something so unique about growing up here. Creatively, I think you're influenced by way different things than people yeah. who grew up in scenes down south. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know from going to the dance schools and stuff. Yeah, growing up here, training with Gary Lang and Absolutely. people like this, and then all of a sudden, because you're the only person here, you're, yeah. not, you're not good and you're not interested yet, Yeah. but you're needed, and so suddenly you're learning traditional dance and you're learning partner dancing, and then you get to see how you can be useful rather than the other way around yeah yeah definitely uh, but then there's this thing about uh, people in the north looking to the south yeah like even universities and of course businesses yeah. and and then people in the south looking way to the north over in europe and north america mm -hmm. and so i wonder if that's if that's the trickle down that when you're talking about feeling on an international level mm. do you feel like I wonder what your place is within that north-south dichotomy of Australia, but then also the southern-northern hemisphere dichotomy of internationally broadcast cultural product. Yeah. I think for me, like, well, we, there's a couple of ways I guess I could talk about that. One of the main things is I feel really proud to come from here, mm -hmm. and I also feel like I don't, I've never had this thing where just, I know people look to the VCA and NIDA and all these places as like, that's the peak of thing. But I, f I feel like creatively, I, I've never felt intimidated by people who've come out of those schools mm. in a musical level. I came out of VCA. Yeah. Not intimidated by me. Nah, <laughs> not, so, not, not so much. I also know you're from Darwin. So it's like, there's a, there's a sort of secret thing with people from Darwin too. There's a laid backness. And I think, you know, you know, I'd, I'd happily say this on record is that I think down people have a bit less front sometimes when they go down south as well. Like I find like when I've gone down south, I've walked into scenes where people, when you meet people sometimes in Melbourne, it feels like they're giving you their resume when you first meet mm -hmm. them. Like, what do you do? Who do you play for? Who do you produce for? And all of that stuff sort of matters in where they'll think. Well, Darwin people, 
it's a bit like, how are you going? And I'm, what do you, who, who, it's more like, who are you than what do you yeah. do? And I think with looking, you know, we're also the gateway to Asia mm. as well. So there's this huge, you know, Asian influence here. There's a huge indigenous influence here, which, I mean, even in Karama, I think most of the population of Karama is Asians and indigenous people. Like it's such a, a vibe when you go to the shop, you feel this energy that you wouldn't feel at other shopping centers around Australia. No, I just drove past some police on horseback actually. Yeah, and yeah like, exactly. Shit, Karama. Karama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. And there's like, obviously some shit going down here. Yeah. Police on horseback. There's, there's, a, there's a definitely a, an, an energy and sometimes it's not the best energy but other times it can feel really community and like culturally well, it smashes heavy. people together exactly yeah so you can't pretend that you're not them yeah totally and I, I, I love that so I think definitely Australia I mean Australia is it's funny because we're such a hot spot at the moment like the world you know with the recent stuff of like you know even things as simple as Flume have sort of put our mm. music industry on this international level people are excited about mm. Courtney Barnett and they're excited about things that we're doing and people talk about us in the media in this real way like they go oh man Australia what's going on down there you know so I think the whole looking to Europe thing has changed a little bit Mm. like for for my music scene I think it's you know even America like people just go oh it used to be this thing of like if you break it in America it's huge and some people even these days feel like America's just a mess you know it's dude like touring over there feels risky and you know Katie and I have been lucky enough to, tr- to tour both in um, America and the UK, um, and it's been great. It's been a great experience. I just think that um, I don't think you need to go there for the nurturing. I think the nurturing and the development can happen in Australia in a really exciting way. We have, you know, the oldest living culture in the world here with the oldest songs, like songs that date back before the pyramids were built. You know, it's sort of to me. That, there's something that people need to tap into here around that. and But of course, man, I recommend everyone to travel and go to all those places. <laughs> it's good for the brain. How do you deal with the, the who you are in relationship to um, wearing the tag of Asian Australian but playing music within indigenous communities and cultures? Um, it's a good question. I think I feel weirdly... I get this sort of bizarre advantage over white people because I think that they just sort of, they see that I'm from a different thing, different place. Mm. Um, whether that means also that they think I naturally know Kung Fu. Like <laughs> lots of young indigenous kids think I know Kung Fu. Which is, a gr- not a, which is a great stereotype. There's not like a, a de- de- defining between different Asian groups. Yeah, like they, they sort of, you know, I'm from, my father's from the Philippines, my mum's from Holland. Um, but I was born in Adelaide, so I obviously sound Australian. But, you know, with stuff like my tattoos and things like that, they'll sort of grab those on the communities and older and younger kids and ask, like, about them. And when I show them on a map where the Philippines is, I sort of talk to them that it's more... We're like, you know, a lot of people consider Filipinos to be more islanders than Asians even. But we... Um, yeah, I feel like the stereotypes, because I have a bit of Chinese blood too, so my eyes have a... They look a little bit Chinese, and people... So the kids... Um, when communities come with this really funny thing of like you look like someone out of a kung fu film we've seen a Jet Li or a Jackie Chan character which I, I think is hilarious it's, it's great when it comes to the older more cultural things mm. what I notice is that they're as I build a friendship with the bands I work with like B2M from the TV Islands or the Lonely Boys from Nuka more recently Mbali Band from Numbawa that 
that connection comes in time. Like that's that's a that's a patient thing. And what will happen is they have an understanding that I have something that's different to like white people in Australia. I have another whole cultural story. They've obviously got that too. We sort of meet and we the first focus is sort of making music and talking about the music side of things. But when they start telling me about what their songs mean and then I can tell them some things about my father's culture, that's where there's, I feel like this little um, bit of, you know, connection happens in a really, on a deeper level than you can kind of, you know, than, than the producer sort of musician relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. Is, is your mum's side just lumped in with white, general whiteness? Yeah. Is there still like, oh, you carry traditional songs from her side as well? A little bit, like, I there's def, there's a few Dutch things that have crept in over the years, but I think what happened is naturally my mum embodied my father's culture more because my father's family were poor, and so she sort of married my father knowing, I think that um, they would spend their life kind of looking after his family. So they went back to the Philippines a lot. Every every two to three years, our family went back to the Philippines. So naturally, she just adopted that. I think that they only went back to Holland for the first time like five years ago. Mm. And but they'd probably been to the Philippines ten times. Yeah. So it's yeah. I, I I guess I do lump. I do lump it a bit, but I have no. I I have Dutch relatives that are very Dutch. Like they're very. They have a real Dutch way about them, and I have an like I call my grandma Uma, and we cook olibola, which is like a New Year's Eve donut tradition. Oh, yeah. And there's a few little fun Dutch things we do. I have a tattoo of a windmill on my left arm. Oh yeah. Which is like my. Um, you know, this is a wooden windmill that my Uma and Opa brought over from Holland after the Second World War. So it's a wooden windmill lamp. So I've got a tattoo of a windmill lamp. Um, but definitely, I feel like we were raised with a stronger Filipino mm. side. How does it go with, uh, say, playing in bands that are basically reggae bands mm. but they're made up of indigenous players yeah and so they're somehow indigenous reggae bands they're not a, they're, which, which I imagine means it's different to a white Australian reggae band yep what is the what's the difference what do you notice sort of, what's um, the different approach that you need to take or well I think for me you know that music has been adopted by so many cultures mm. so what I'm looking for is how to these days I'm looking for is how to produce it in a, in a new way yeah. like I feel like there's so many recordings of reggae bands done sort of okay they're recorded they sound quite 80s and there's a vibe so for me I'm not really at that point I'm not really worrying I think that the difference for me is just the musicianship like there's a natural musicianship in the bush of people um, who have just played music from when they were babies yeah. with the same people who are also their family members. So the way a band can argue in the bush yeah, yeah, is yeah. actually, <laughs> you know, like you get yeah. these kind of dudes who sort of, you know, they know each other in school or they came mates through the Darwin music scene or at Brown's Mart and they met in these scenes and they form bands. There's an energy of obviously where creatively they're on the same page and they try and work together and they probably argue a bit and make their yeah. songs better. But they go home to their own families. Go home to their own families, you know, while in the in the bush, like in, in Numbawa, like, you know, the six members of Mumbali band, four of them are related. The other two are, uncle, are called, you know, uncle to this other guy who's also the band manager. There's some type, there's this massive connection of, of culture, of history, mm. and the way they've played music together has been since they were little. Mm. So when they, when they, it feels like they're like one real force already. Mm -hmm. And I guess my job is when I'm producing those records, um, 
you know, often alongside like Michael Honan um, from Skinny Fish. It's trying to find something unique about that and something that can be presented to a mainstream audience is seen and seen as something much deeper than just a, a great Aboriginal band. Like a, just yeah, a, yeah. you just want them to see it as a great band yeah. with reggae influences or with you know. But always, always um, for me, it's like about the sound of records. Like I, I, I get you know that's to me more important. Like it doesn't really matter what the style. Of, if, if they're playing classic reggae stuff um, and it just sounds like it's straight out of like some you know. Lucky Dubai or you know what's it called um, you know Maxi Priest or all the classic sort of 80s reggae if it just sounds exactly like that I, I sort of feel like part of a, produ- a producer's job is to sort of separate it from that because yeah. that's already been done it's been done really well but it's, it's it sounds dated and, and you want you want to give these guys the best opportunity they, mm. they have to to go somewhere with their music how do you approach hip hop because, and I asked from the background of, um, I saw some boys break dancing at Casuarina Square and that set me on the path of becoming a dancer. Yeah, cool. And it didn't occur to me that I was the only white dude in the crew and it didn't occur to <laughs> yeah, me yeah, yeah. that. I remember um, seeing you back then too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, we went to Tennant Creek. That's right, I you remember. Keo. Keo Creo, we did work and for and Marco and Marco Tiapo. I remember, yeah. that was awesome, yeah. And you guys were teaching hip hop and we yeah. were teaching hip hop, but you were doing the music, we were doing the dance. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And we ended up, we couldn't teach classes because it wasn't that structure. We had to set up a boom box in just the center of town. That's right. And then people could just come along and we would jam with them and then they would leave when they got bored. And that yeah. was how we ran the classes that we were yeah. supposed to teach. But I, so I wonder about that in the, like, sudden, somehow my even physical identity mm-hmm. came from uh, like this downtrodden community of people on the other side of the world mm-hmm. via the Filipino and Chinese community yeah, in Darwin, Darwin because yeah. those boys are allowed to dance and white boys are not allowed to yeah, dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then I wonder, I wonder about your version of that story with hip hop and then how you um, work with people to make hip hop that is. I mean, yeah, that's. That's a really, that's a really, I guess, deep question in the sense that people, um, lots of people feel ownership of hip hop now. Like, and I think that's, I think it's become a global, I think the West Coast, I think Dr. Dre took it, I think that, you know, the East Coast, we know hip hop started on the East Coast of America and the West Coast took it to the world. They made it pop. They made it like, they made sure every system. Like yoga. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> it, started, it started somewhere and then the West Coast took yeah, it to yeah. the world. Really took it and to the world. And then people have grown up with it and now they're like, fuck, that's not cultural appropriation. That's what I was raised on. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think I think what I feel um, with hip hop is that it's a minority music still now though, to a degree. And it's, mm-hmm. even though, you know, pretty much every rich white kid in the world probably listens to hip hop as well, to a degree. Mm-hmm. What I find about back then when you're talking about like the scenes in Darwin and it there was a point in Australia where there was no representation of people of colour in the media on the stages I remember the first person I saw on stage who was Asian was was Quan from Regurgitator you know real? yeah and you know and, and at Livid Festival and then I saw Dexter Filipino DJ from the Avalanches mm. so I think a lot of minority groups found hip hop and went 
this is something that we feel connected to. Mm. The, we know it's about injustice and we've always felt like a little bit um, strange growing up in Australia. You know, it, it's hard to say this because there's a part of growing up in Darwin where you don't actually, the classes are so multicultural, it actually doesn't have that edge as much. But all you have to do is go home and watch Home and Away. And you yeah. go, okay, yeah, so I'm, I'm Marco not. made the point to me that well, Round the Twist, he yeah. never watched Round the Twist because yeah. there was no one on there like him. Exactly. So he would watch... Um, Ah, ship to shore. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, called, yeah. and then it was just on an island, and there are all these different coloured yeah. kids. But even stuff like Monkey Magic, you know, like you, you find out as you get older. Like I used to love watching Monkey Magic because there was Asian dudes and stuff. Mm. But then as I got older, I realised that half of it was voiced by white actors imitating Asian people, and I was like, mm. okay, that's pretty full. I had the uh, other way around. I yeah. was in Tokyo, and yeah. I just wanted to buy some some of those cool tabi pants, the workers oh, yeah, pants. Yeah, yeah. And I went to this workwear shop, like a King G shop, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And um. Obviously, I st- stood out because yeah. I'm hella white looking. And these people came over to me with a video camera, interviewed me for the nightly news segment. Yeah. And then I bought this uh, onesie and they found out that I was a dancer and got me to do some break dancing in the onesie in a park. Yeah, nice. And then when I, when I found the, the news segment, I'd been dubbed over in Japanese, even my giggle at the end. when I was like, oh, it's got great <laughs> ventilation. <laughs> and he's like, oh, 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 oh. Yeah, yeah, but, wow. Like, it, That's like, amazing. The stereotype <laughs> comes from the archetype. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and then when I remember, I was on, you know, through the electronic shops, and there was the um, Power Rangers playing on all the TVs in yeah. Japan. I wonder why that is. Found out that it's all Japanese mm. in the beginning, and then when they made it American, they just reshot the scenes where they're not wearing masks. Yeah. But actually, all of the fight scenes were just cut directly from... The Japanese version. Yeah, so everyone in the outfits, in the Power Ranger outfits, are Japanese. Yeah, wow. It's all their skills. That's hilarious. And you just don't know that. Nah. There's, I mean, there's so many of those type of things, yeah. but I just feel like the... Um, I guess for hip-hop, it was it felt like a bit of ownership from, yeah, yeah, yeah. from me and my friends and just feeling that connection. Even though our struggle is so different to the... American, um, you know, the African American experience is, is so different to the um, struggle. But there was certain, it was a feeling about it. Like there's a there's a line in the show I'm doing now in between two where I say I didn't come to hip hop for, for politics reasons. I came to hip hop because I thought Snoop Dogg was so cool. Mm. Like just that's the bottom line for me. It was really I was like this weird dude with the coolest jackets and nice cars, and I was like that's appealed to me on a quite a probably superficial level. But that yeah. was honestly how I. I came to hip hop, and then and then the politics sort of came in later. Yeah, I wonder about the politics. I wonder how far it seeps. Like even your choice of where to shave and where to leave your beard grow is that yeah, political? Yeah. And does nah, that nah, that's, you something? Is that's that just, just that's just because I like the way it makes my face look. <laughs> but it does cause problems. It like chisels the jawline. Yeah, it doesn't. It does cause problems at international airports though. Ah, but right. Yeah, because, because it's seen as a Muslim beard. Yeah, right. Um, but or Amish for some reason. Yeah, but Amish. It's like they yeah. forget that the Amish also do that. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. The, I think the the the, um, the face of the Muslim terrorist. It's yeah, so yeah. embedded in people's minds that when people see this beard, they they do um, they do think that. Yeah. But um, no, no, there's nothing political about that. I've pretty much had the same haircut for ten years now. Right. <laughs> well, what's your what's your biggest hope when you were saying about making the records and making it sound as good as it can be and being on the level with the world not oh they're good considering yeah 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 
Like, what's your biggest hope with what is the power in that? What is the potential in that? I mean, I think like I'm 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 very lucky that I have I make a living from making music. You know, that's so. As far as like a personal thing, I guess it's just to I, I personally hope to grow. Um, you know, just become better at that. Mm. But as far as like. I, I think in, as far as like if I just talk locally because I really believe in community revolution I believe that there's a lot of people posting hundreds of things on Facebook every day about how they think the world should change hmm. but I sometimes feel like have you even said hello to your neighbour in the last five my years my dad's version of that is to yell at the TV yeah okay yeah totally it's um, a different generation so I guess if, if for, a hope for Darwin is you know I'd love to you know I work at um, I work at Tivendale School which is inside of Dondale Prison mm. Um, so I work there sometimes. So I would, you know, one of the things I would hope is that there's a massive, and it's, you know, it's 98% Indigenous incarceration there. Mm. I would hope that there would be effective change within, you know, the bands and communities I work with, that leaders would rise up through those things. And also for me at the moment, like I feel like that has an influence in the bush, but on the urban landscape of the Darwin, like from the CBD to the suburbs to Palmerston, I guess, you know, without sounding like I'm trying to create a freaking heal the world campaign, <laughs> I um, I would hope that what I would hope to do is to set up a studio that would be that some of the great um, minds and talented young people from those scenes that right now are maybe you know there's gangs of young people just trying to break in and get the next get yeah. the next fix yeah. of whatever that there would creatively be a scene and a swell of stuff in Darwin that ends a bit of that boredom. Yeah. And that some great art and music and culture comes from that. That's a very general thing to say. I think we've got some great leaders. I love like our local member here, Nari Akit. I think she's really forward thinking. You know, she's an indigenous woman with Chinese blood. I think that type of, some of the young leaders in the NT are really exciting at the moment. But for me, I can't even, um, I have to think about like the community I work with. And so my main hope, I guess, is to see that community continue to grow and flourish and everyone I work with just to become, to help them achieve what they want to do artistically. Mm. Yeah, that's probably. It's funny because, I mean, it's not funny. What is interesting is that the work needs to come from and exist within mm. a community, um, but the work itself to be on an international standard needs to have an international or universal uh, truth about it. Or Absolutely. Something. Well, a quality, really. Yeah. It has to have an international quality about it. Like, you don't want to play a record um, next to another record and people go, oh, it just sounds dodgy or it doesn't sound good. And this is one of the biggest things I tell Darwin bands is, you know, I, I, would, love, I would love for it to be easier to make amazing sounding records, but unfortunately, it's, it's hard. You've got to save yeah. money and you've got to... Um, you've got to gather my dad's just arriving home in his Galant his 1970s Galant the first car he ever bought in Australia <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty boss yeah <laughs> um, I think um, I think it's hard being in Darwin to get a, a perspective on quality yeah. that's probably one of the biggest things for me is going um, but on the quality of the generation of the actual art or on the quality of the skills and recording equipment and product that is that comes out of it? 
Yeah, I guess I'll rephrase that because you can now have access to all the music in the world and yeah, you can yeah, have access yeah, to yeah. YouTube videos of mix engineers yeah. telling you how to make your mix better. But there's something about when you live in a small town that you can become, your perspective can be a bit more warped. Yeah. So I think it, it, it's, it's both. It's yeah. like the quality of the musicians and the gear up here is, is sometimes, you know, not amazing. But there's not saying that you can't make amazing records up here because I, I fully believe you can. Mm. Like Katie Baker's about to drop her album and she did all of the vocals in a small, tiny studio in Stuart Park. Yeah. Right. But, but the guy just happened to have a $10,000 Wagner mic through a 1970s Mercury preamp that sounds amazing. But that's the only, that's that, uh, that's the only chain in Darwin of that quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in Melbourne, there's probably about a hundred of those chains around. Yeah. So you have to, you have to want to make your record sound amazing, yeah. and you have to, you have to seek that. You know, I think there's bands like hardcore bands like Tapestry who go to Melbourne now to record their albums, and it sounds like the quality is international. Yeah, right. It sounds better because they've done that. Mm. They've made the choice to do those sort of things. So it's a, you know, it's a very broad, it's, it's everything about, also in Melbourne, you get to go out and see lots of music. So you get to see the quality of how bands perform because if you're not good, you don't get a gig. Mm. And so you go and see three amazing bands in one night for $10 and you go far out, like look how hard, you can obviously see how hard they've worked. I think sometimes opportunities in Darwin fall quite easily in musicians' laps and that hustle, it's a good game to learn. You know, you don't have to be a nasty hustler or anything like that, you can actually do it in a really, um, a way that still, you know, you maintain really strong integrity, but mm. learning to have that hustle is really important, I reckon. What is that? So what's the, what is that? How do you hustle with integrity? I think you just, you just seek to do what you do really well. Yeah. And you, you talk to people confidently about it and you just, you know, it's, it's a lot about like self-belief, I think. Yeah. I think when I meet someone who I don't feel like they've got anything to prove to me, but they are just, They'll, you know, I often meet people after gigs who go, I want to send you some beats or I want to send you some stuff for some feedback. And I think that's fine. Like that, and the way, even the way they ask, like I have, you know, young producers say, hey, I'm about to release an EP. Be great to, for you to hear it and see if the mix is good. Mm. Like that's a, that's a hustle because he's actually, he's actually grabbing my ear. And, and I, have, I appreciate that hustle. That's not him going, I've got this EP, it's the best thing in the world. You're just going to blow your mind when you hear it, mate. Like, and then I press play and it doesn't blow my mind. <laughs> if it blows my mind, a part of me will go, well, a part of me might not even listen to it if that's the attitude behind it. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I find that, you know, if the hustle, the hustle comes from having relationships with people and then being true relationships. It doesn't have to be a dirty, like, sucking up to someone to get a place. It can be something as simple as just being honest about who you are as an artist and someone going, oh, I'm really interested in that guy. Like, he spoke to me. The way he spoke to me um, felt really, like, He's, he's working really hard and he just wants some help. I'm gonna go check out his stuff. And that's part of the way heaps of great stories have started. Mm. So yeah. What, how do you feel about, in hip hop especially, the mm. racial spread of the people that are represented as well as the gender spread of the people that are represented? Or like, do you approach that at all? Yeah, heaps. I mean, yeah. I, I toured with Katie um, in Seattle, we, we we weren't a hip hop act. We had beats, but she's a soul singer, blues mm -hmm. singer. So we would be backstage at festivals where she was the only girl with twenty dudes. So from a gender point of view, there's that's a there's a big gap there. Yeah, right. Is that in the audience as well when you look out at the crowd? Mm, pretty much. I mean, I think radio is still like eighty two percent male voices mostly. Yeah. Doesn't probably feel like that as much at the moment. Like there's definitely a shift happening, but um, look, hip hop. You know, it's 
that's that's a worldwide thing. That's not just Australia. Mm. But there are a lot more amazing women coming up in hip hop, and I think that's exciting. Um, because they'll have their own struggle to rap about. That's the exciting thing is they have a completely different struggle. Mm. It, it, it's not always like Katie doesn't necessarily write songs about that, but she has an energy to some of her songs where she's saying, I'm not going to let a man tell me how I should dress, how I should be, how I should act. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess that's, there's still a lot of work to be done in that. And, um, you know, Australia has a kind of naturally has quite a alpha male culture sometimes. So, mm. Damaging um, to the alphas themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's interesting to see women sort of um, be real bosses on stage right now and see mm. how some men like absolutely love it and some men just find it like too full on. Candy Bowers yep. and um, Busty. Yeah, and Victoria Chu, yep. who's a contemporary dance maker uh, with Chinese heritage. She, they made a duet recently about the fragility of white men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I didn't get to see it because I left Melbourne too soon, but I really liked that they were going to make a hip-hop comedy show mm. out of, like, how... out of the situation where people can't hand the mic over for a little while. Yeah. Full, with full knowledge that they'll probably get it back eventually without mm-hmm. even asking for it. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, that's... I mean, those guys do that type of art it's really good it's provocative mm-hmm. and it makes people think and talk mm-hmm. and and also the theatre art scene you know you are often performing things about minority culture and stuff mm. um, to a room full of white people sometimes so well they're the know. ones yeah I mean it's also a western art tradition yeah theatre and theatre and galleries and shit like that yeah yeah so totally. it makes in a lot of ways it makes sense for the ballet to be full of white people performing to white people because mm. it's a white heritage situation. Yeah. I think that's the thing that we find with In Between too. It's fun to sort of throw in. Like we we definitely invite heaps of Asians to our show and they feel like, I think they feel like we're telling their story but other people, for, for white people in the crowd, it's like a really different perspective for, for them to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, that's you know. what I wonder about doing the Blokes Project is that we we did a showing at Brownsmart and then we realised we couldn't have it in a theatre because the people that need to see the show are not going to come to a theatre. That's, that's so much what we're going through. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one of our things with doing the Melbourne Festival coming up in October is to try and let those groups know this is their space. Yeah, like yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they, they just, you know, because some people, I know I've invited a bunch of Melbourne crew from like Dandenong and stuff, and they've never been to the theatre in their lives, and to sit down at the art centre and pay thirty something dollars for a ticket. Yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. It's crazy, you know. I- I'd rather than pay five bucks and they can see it anywhere. I'd rather go down to Dandenong and do it in some hall yeah, for them. Yeah, but yeah. it's also like, no, no, you deserve you deserve a seat at this table too. There's this place, and mm-hmm. and you know, there and and by coming here, you're actually giving us at our at our level, we can start talking to curators and be like, no, 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 no. If you put on the stuff that is for them, they will come. Mm. And it's not even about it being just for them, it's about just, just grabbing their interest. And yeah, I think, I mean, that goes back to the whole thing about um, the racial scene in, uh, the racial discussion in Australian hip hop at the moment is that it used to be like the gigs were just full of white people on stage and white people in the crowd. And that's shifting as well. Mm. And that does take, you know, I think the artists rising through the ranks, um, you know, the black artists coming up, it's like that, that changes p- 
people feel, starting to feel like they want to go to hip hop gigs now and minority groups going, oh look, you know, like people like AB Original and Briggs and Trials are like kicked down this huge door and suddenly like there's um, black fellas who are going, yeah, I, I, can, I want to go to that gig because I know I'm going to be represented, I'm going to yeah. feel safe at that gig. Yeah and on stage is going to be two people telling my story and my culture mm. and it makes me feel so proud and i think that's that's amazing like that's that's like a little bit of a starting of a revolution that is a revolution there there was there's a group called sipat lawin ensemble in oh, manila yeah. and they um i remember hearing jk who runs it speaking about performance being a practice for revolution yeah and that whatever you can get away with in performance and get your audience on board with, yeah. that's the seed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I also wonder about, like, when, when is it going to get to the point where it's our story, everybody that gets up is telling our story? Because I remember being at... I was part of this... Uh, con- concert residency, and the concert will come to me. It's not, it's not Big Day Out, but it's one of those ones down at near Byron Bay but there was um, there was a bunch of artists that were asked to come to the festival and then pitch art interventions okay. installation or performance or whatever it was I pitched a performance but they didn't go for it because it would have taken up stage time okay. so they mainly just want sculptures over in the corner yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I felt super uncomfortable when Listen, Esso came on stage yeah. to the point that I had to get out of that crowd just because I felt like people were like they were gearing up like Braveheart kind of gearing up ready yeah. to swing yeah. but then when the herd were on stage it wasn't the case yeah that's because like Listen, Esso are just like they just cater for that like they have really I mean they got a bit to answer for I reckon yeah um, also there's really gammon <laughs> but, you know like it's like musically I just find them I mean I, they're, actually their first EP when I was in Brisbane in like 2002 or 2003 their first EP I was like this has got something like this and obviously they had some skill back in the day but I just find like they they are to me they're like the yeah they're like the epitome of that terrible white Aussie male hip hop scene that just that is not inclusive exactly yeah. exact, pretty much I don't even just say anything because how you describe it is exactly how so many people describe yeah. it to me and the herd, well, I am a white Aussie male and totally. it definitely didn't include me yeah but that's the thing you're, you're, you're a white Aussie male who has a, a, a strong understanding of different cultures and who is obviously open minded is also an arc practitioner yourself so for you you knew you, you would have even to a degree maybe you even felt more uncomfortable like there's something about yeah, right. that's, that's quite confronting while The Herd are like this nine piece sort of folk hip hop group of <laughs> yes. fun and weirdness who sing about <laughs> political things they've got yeah. people of mixed race in the band they've got you know Jane a female in the band mm. there's you know that's that's a I mean that you kind of just summed it up in a, in a weird way and you know I think in the same way that what AB Original are doing, they're probably making some people feel uncomfortable. Well, you would probably go, this is Absolutely. awesome. Absolutely. But, but that's... Because they're hitting as hard. That's it. They're, they're, not, the, they're the answer to that. And, yeah. they're, and, they're, and I think that's the thing where people are like, oh, you know, why is everyone so upset right now about things? You know, it used to be not be that bad. Everyone used to kind of just deal with all this sort of, you know, it's getting too political, correct? And in my head, I'm like, man, we just got a platform now. We're just, mm. like, we've, we've, I've been feeling like this for ages. It just happens now that people put me on theatre stages and I get to say shit. Like, same with you know Briggs and Trials and that like they've they've always felt like this, but now they ha- they've done something that suddenly put them on the main stage at Splendor in the Grass. 
Yeah. And so people are suddenly like, a lot of people are shocked and like, oh my God, I can't believe Triple J is playing this, this racist group, AB Original. It's hilarious to watch people not even understand, not even put themselves in their shoes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's really, that's a really, it's a really interesting time in Australian music and Australian hip hop because you'll notice that the amount of bands in the scene that have got behind that movement is phenomenal. Mm. And not just bands with people of color, like bands like, you know, bands like Violent Soho and bands like full of white dudes who are just like this behind the whole AB movement. It's yeah. awesome. What do you think about the... So what I noticed when we were in Tennant Creek, like 15 years ago... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that... Crockfest. Yeah, Crockfest. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. NT's version of Rocker Steadford. Yeah, but you're Thundee played, eh? Remember yeah, that? yeah. And then, like, and then everyone gets up on stage afterwards. Yeah, yeah. that was crazy. Um, was that there were lots of... Lots of Sean John clothes, lots of Sean Paul clothes, yeah. lots of Snoop shirts and Wu-Tang Wu- lots of Wu-Tang polyester out in the middle of 40 degrees yeah yeah um, just because there's there's no there was no one of colour in Australia yeah and so I wonder about that when it comes to like bands like AB Original are speaking their story and their issues and it's getting out because it's in a musical form that the world has learned how to listen to but it's not theirs. It's theirs because they've grown up with it and it's theirs because they're using it. But it didn't come from them and I wonder what, what it would sound like if there was a if there was space in on Triple J radio for black Australian music mm-hmm. and if it was recorded and what it would sound like. Because I don't I don't know actually. I can't even imagine what that would be like and if people could sing along to it in the way that they can sing along to an AB original hip hop song which is obviously in that 4-4 which has obviously got yeah. the drum machine I reckon it's it's really interesting you say that because the um, you know the passing of our friend Dr. G has has brought up some conversations around that and one of the things that his unreleased album is actually notated Yudaki did you do parts mm. notated um, with traditional old chant songs that are so old. So the, 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 the phrasing is like out of this world, the dig part, it's, it's not just a 4-4 four, four rhythm, it's also, it goes all over the place. Some of the songs are in like 4-4, four, four, then 2-4 for a bar and all this sort of stuff. And it's been notated to an, by a composer named Eki to an orchestra where the Yudaki parts are now played on a cello. And so what it's done, it's actually said this music that you've all seen is like primitive and only sung in bungal or at ceremony and funerals is actually so intricate. It's, it's as intricate as like the Beethoven and the Mozart. Mm. So it's like almost this project is a way to show, it's like you said, it's putting it in a format that white people understand, but the realization through it is, wow, that traditional music is so intricate. We just see it as like, the, you know, that classic clapstick dig and singing and yeah, people yeah, just go, yeah, oh, that's yeah. what you see in the mall from you know some long grasser that's left their community and trying to get 10 bucks off you you know that's often how a lot of people i think view that or have seen that music but that's the way that music being presented to them yeah. but really that incredible traditional music you know there's, there's i mean there's a film like there's the jalu film that's come out with goitier where he started exposing that how incredibly intricate he finds the iraqi and the, the power he feels in it there's dr g Unapingu who's gonna his his you know his album that he's passed away now but his album that is going to come out who knows when we'll we'll again do that on a whole nother level um that traditional music 
is something that our country is, I reckon it's so far away from recognizing on a, like an ARIA level still. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? That's um, what I wonder, like what it would take to get my ears ready. Cause I still can't really listen to say Indian music because the tones are so different. It's yeah. Like, well, I think as well, it just, it, it comes from, um, it comes from what, what you, um, what you were raised on and what your ears yeah, are used yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, part of, the trick I think or, or not the trick but part of the technique technique or skill <laughs> yeah. is to find ways to constantly present that music yeah. um, to the world so for example we've gotten um, Herma Digital remix of one of the tracks of that mm. album and they've taken that Yadaki part and they've put a certain sample on that part so what you hear is this electronic tune that sounds amazing and contemporary and futuristic mm. but there's this traditional rhythm that goes through the whole thing and you know that it's it's I think you know Timberland's famous for doing that over the years. There, there are producers around the world who have been doing that. Mm. I think it's more about telling the, the story behind it, yeah. so that people go, "Oh, okay, maybe I do like traditional indigenous rhythms." Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. just didn't really know it, yeah. and maybe I do like it. I've just when I've heard it with a digin clapsticks, it hasn't quite registered with me because I'm not used to that sound. Yeah, right. But then, after your ear getting used to that other thing maybe then when you next see yeah. a bungal or traditional thing you'll be like wow I, I, that rhythm is so interesting and I mean musically for me that's a massive nerd thing and I, I still don't have my <laughs> head around I don't even know when they do traditional bungal I can't even tell when they're going to start and stop but there's this whole other rhythm going on in there with mm. the feet and the dancing and you know as a dancer you'd be like they're not counting in like eights or they what's the no, count no. here there's yeah. a different thing going on the yeah. thing that I'm really interested in dance shows like dancing I'm interested in the dancing that activity of it and what doing it with others produces but when I'm thinking about making a dance show it's always about what is what I'm doing as the performer doing to you to watch it so what is the phenomena that is being created not what is the steps and how are they done all of that is to produce this other thing that sidesteps the rationale and gives you a feeling I remember having that kind of breakthrough with vegetables um, because both my parents are from Anglo traditions where yeah. you boil the shit out of vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I ended up hanging out, like going to my adopted auntie's houses when I joined this crew that was all mostly Filipino. Yeah. And then you're having, suddenly you're having vegetables that aren't boiled the shit out of. Oh, yeah. I like vegetables. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're crunchy and delicious. Yeah, they've got some taste and flavour. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's it's funny that... Um, but even hip-hop, like, if you'd only ever heard Listen Esso because it's on commercial radio, you'd be like, this is a bunch of shit. Yeah, yeah. What, what you said about AB Original is really interesting in the sense that it's, like, the 4-4 thing and people can sing along. I think what happens with that is, like, their, the sound of their record in many ways is is nothing new to the you know it's influenced by west coast hip-hop it's got boom bat drums and synths and raps and you know know it's got classic things that you know in 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 hip-hop you know how to nod your head you know how to put your hands in the air to it it's it's what they've created is is a feeling around it all as well you know they called it reclaim australia the way they marketed the way that they came out and spoke about things so this for me that that story and that feeling is the thing that's really unique about it no australian artist has ever done that and that is the work that they're doing totally and even though it's hugely influenced by america of course because that's the music they love growing up and that's they work with producers like you know i produced a track on that record and i love you know the track I produce is very Dr. Dre like it's completely like I've got a Dre piano line there's so much about it that's like a Dr. Dre homage in a way Mm -hmm. and so I think that um, 
it's also about Australia going, actually, this is Australian music. Like the story of it and the feeling and who's making it are Australians. This is Australian music. It's obviously it's influenced by America, but we, you know, it sort of feels like the, the people go, what's the most Australian music? And people just go, oh, Paul Kelly, because he's got that most Aussie accent when he rap, uh, when he sings. When he raps, Paul Kelly raps. rapping. <laughs> I think Paul Kelly's probably got a few bars here and there, but you know, he's got this thing and so, it was interesting when he did that dumb things like a version with AB original because it's so his his dumb things chorus is so Aussie like it's so Australian sounding and they, and they rap in Aussie accents as well but the overall curve of their record doesn't have as an Aussie sound in the, when I say Aussie I mean like you know Paul Kelly has such a, a tone that you just associate with an Australian songwriter mm. and I think um, their their album you know felt international in, on so many levels so what happens is, um, is I think now the definition of what Australian music is and what Australian music sounds like is changing. And that's exciting because then I think that also opens up those doors yeah. to bring in more of that traditional music to the mainstream, you yeah. know? And, and you know, it could be someone like Jessica Malboy that does it. It could be someone who's already in a position of power and they go, actually, no, I'm gonna go do this thing. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the most amazing things about Dr. G in Opingu's life is that he, in Australia, if you said, "Oh yeah, we're gonna," there's a blind Aboriginal singer from Okoala. We're gonna release an album. It's gonna have no English. It's all gonna be language, but just him and a guitar, a bit of reverb, and maybe some strings on some songs. I think people would have gone, ah, "That's not gonna do anything." Mm-hmm. And you know, they, I think the guys who made it left the studio and went, "Maybe we'll sell like five thousand copies." And then you know, it sold three quarters of a million copies or whatever. Now, that the fact that that's an album in language, it shows that when the music is so is so dope and. And, and the feeling of the melodies and the songs and you know they're western chord. he's playing G majors he's not playing traditional um, you know it's not his traditional chants on those albums as such but they're all of those stories creep into that album yeah. all of those traditional um, feelings and who he is so that that's one of those phenomenons that's just trans- transcended all genres and boundaries and cultures and I think that that's I mean that's that's incredible and our country, you know, to a degree, he's been acknowledged in the right way through that. Mm. It's, it's an interesting thing when we were speaking within the Australian context, we speak about uh, people being Philo-Australian or Chinese-Australian or Indigenous-Australian, but when we're speaking about an international music context, everyone becomes Australian. Yeah, yeah, it is funny. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's weird that he like Dr. G I think two years ago he was nominated in the ARIA Awards in the world music category and yeah, we're like right. that's weird like what because it's in another language it's a language that's spoken in Australia dudes yeah. like get it together yeah but I think <laughs> it's the same with cinema no it's like um, uh, foreign films like yeah. American movies are not in the foreign film category but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a foreign film yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it becomes a genre Transformers 5 is a foreign film <laughs> and should not have been made <laughs> the soundtrack is in the world music category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mate, it sounds like you're on a bit of like a winning streak at the moment. Like shit's rolling into other shit. Yeah. But I imagine it hasn't always been. No, definitely not. I mean, there was a. I've got a weird period in my life where I was living in Melbourne and working with another producer, and it felt like we were working on. Um, so we had this weird phone call where. Basically, my phone rang and I answered it, and it was Daniel Johns from Silverchair. And he'd heard this EP that me and my friend made for fun with all these synths. Yeah. And he was basically like, oh, I got given your EP at a barbecue last night, and my brother gave me a phone number because his brother worked at our publishing company. 
And he goes, um, I want you to come and work on my record. And so I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. Um, you know, I um, obviously love Silverchair, but also know him as an artist. I'd known about his career. So that was four or five years ago. And I started working on that record a lot with a friend of mine. And through that process, um, you know, we started going overseas a little bit and a few things happened where it felt like there was a really clear pathway for me. Like, you got to get into this producer game and just seek to work with the biggest artists you can. Mm -hmm. You got to get beats on the biggest artists' albums and you've got to mm -hmm. get things. So working on that record was like this huge step and suddenly when you can put that on your resume, it, it really helps you with certain things. But what I found from that whole process, working with him was was awesome and he's um he's a great artist to work with and you know i i can't wait to see what he what he does next always but when i started when i went overseas there was a few times i went into these situations that felt really like guys would come in like songwriters would come in and i was the producer and they just wanted to write a hit and it was like i did 10 days um of that once in a row of guys coming in who just wanted to write hits and I'd play beats and we and we're writing a, a beat and a hook for some rapper that we're hopefully then an A&R guy's gonna take into that rapper and try and sell this idea and all this stuff. And it's like the dream come true for a lot of producers. It's like being in that situation is like, okay, this is pretty much like, this is the step before when you land something on a record and then suddenly everyone wants a piece of you. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you, you know, you get guys like DJ Mustard in, in the LA scene, at one point, his sound was popular. He had 17 tracks in the top 40 that he produced. Shit. You know, so there's there's an element where if you bring something unique to that scene and then it takes off. Yeah. And I tell you what, the temptation and the way people gas you up and the way labels gas you up, it's phenomenal. It, it, it can really get into you. What I found though, is when I was on the plane back home, I was like thinking about all the work I'd done in the territory over the years and all the guys out bush, like the B2M guys and that. And I just felt like, I felt this weird like emptiness mm. where I was like, man, that is, I don't know if I want to chase this. Mm. Like, I don't know if that's the right thing to chase. So I came back to Australia and I had a really big think about um, my career. And, I'd, and, and it was sort of around that period that I decided to come back up north. And even though I'd had this, like what peop some people would say is really successful time, it was finding being in a, I think the best thing that feels like a winning streak is I work on the projects I want to work on. And I work with people that I truly love as an artist and respect. And I still get to work with some of those great artists, but it's such a different vibe than when you're just, it's like a, a factory where you're just making beats and you're just hoping some rapper, well, now I have a relationship with people like Birds and Briggs and the Bad Apple Squad, you know, this young rapper Tasm and Keith I'm working with right now, he's coming up like, and I, I, I know their story, I know their family, mm -hmm. and suddenly we're making tunes together and it feels like that feeling when you first make music in high school with someone, and that feeling is so much better than the other one. And I believe long-term, that's where the wins come to. Mm -hmm. And whether those wins are like financial or recognition, um, that's, that's sort of, you know, it, I mean, you need to eat, you need to, have, you need to make money from this thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can go through a period where you're sort of feeling like maybe you're gonna make a lot of money, but you have to stop and question whether you're really happy. That's so important for artists to do, I reckon. Yeah. And it's also that thing that it's not, um, it's not the reception when something is released. Like that, that song in a recording exists and it lives on, yeah. for, at least for generations, if yeah. not forever. And if you're putting out shit, yeah. it doesn't matter how successful it is in the first week because then it stays shit. Absolutely. For generations. But if you put out something good, then it, at least the consolation prize 
is that there is now something in the world that should be in the world. Absolutely, man. Like, I think labels have, I think people go, oh, you know, but everyone, that music's just doing their thing and it's, 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 you know, it's fine. Like some people love that pop music. And then part of me goes, man, in the 60s or 70s, I think it's the 70s, label managers at the big labels weren't full of people who knew about music. They were full of people who knew how to get music to people. And they would let Led Zeppelin put seven minute songs on record. Mm-hmm. And they would let these Janis Joplin's and all these creative things go out. It's, and that's why we still listen to them. That's why we still listen to them. And right now people go, oh, you know, but people do love this, you know, manufactured pop. And it's like, I don't, I understand that some of it has its place, but there's a lot of good music that I think consciously the labels know that they could push that would still work. Mm-hmm. It's proven that stuff comes through. Like no one thought that that Courtney Barnett record would do what it do, but people are searching for something real, you know? And I think that those records, I'm not saying pop music can't, can't no, and some of it resonates in a way that they weren't even expecting. Totally. Mm. I just think that, um, you know, I think that there's a, that thing about putting out shit is so true. Like you, I'd rather, I think if you look back at your life, I think you'd always rather go, I put out that, maybe it didn't sell 10 million copies, maybe it only sold like 30,000 copies or 10,000 copies, but I'm so freaking proud of it. Like it's mm-hmm. so, it's so, the vibe of it is so good. Mate, what about the like the nuts and the bolts? Like you rock into a studio mm-hmm. and you've got to make some music. Yeah. And then, like, what do you have? A notepad? Do you have a synth? Do you have a, a laptop? Um, yeah, I, I I mostly use like a Logic and a laptop, but I I get to work out of a few different studios, which is cool. Mm. But I have a setup that's very simple. Like I love I do all my drums in a program called Battery Four, mm. and I still use an MPC. I've just bought a new sampler yesterday, like a Roland SP four hundred four. I still love those. I love not having computers on stage, yeah. even though I have to a lot of the time. But there's something for me um, as a bass player that loves so much not having to um, have a computer mm. on stage. But making music in the studio, um, it depends. Like when I'm given a project that already has like vocals recorded and all that sort of stuff, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll work on that track um, in a different way than when I'm just writing beats. When I'm writing beats, it's purely a form of inspiration. It's like yeah, right, you, yeah. just, you start with like some drums and you see what you can, if you can whip up a rhythm and then you add things to it accordingly. How do you know what to add? Well, I feel like you just kind of, um, every, every producer has their little, you know, template formulas. But for me, I do a little bit keep someone in mind when I'm making the drums, oh, yeah. like a rapper and stuff. But at the same time, it all depends. If I start from a sample, like if I start from a sample of an old record, that sort of dictates where the track's going to go. And often mm. I'll remove that sample by the end of the session um, or try and replace mm. it in, in a different way. But... Um, I've made dance yeah. sections like that where you... You pick the thing that you need to affect you yeah. so that you as the artist can generate what needs to be generated. And then you have the foresight to realize that the audience doesn't need that thing. No. They need the thing that you've now generated. Totally. So you take it away and you give them something else. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a, recently I did a project with um, Kelly Beneforti from Trax and she just gave me a description of what she wanted and I just wrote the music. Yeah. Um, that stuff's funny if you know the person. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah, if you know yeah. the person well, then you can, I find that stuff easy because you're tapping into something. And, and you know, people also come to me for my sound. Like they know I, you know, I make pretty stomping sort of tracks and I have, mm. I love a lot of bass and there's so, so I feel like people come to me, like people aren't gonna come to me to produce a country record right now. What a shame. Maybe in 20 Paul years. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd love to produce a track for Paul Kelly. But I, um, I just, you know, that's, that's not my strength. 
I also think like as a producer, like sometimes the gift of being a good producer is knowing where you're weak mm. and knowing where someone else might be better at doing something for mm. you. And I think that's really good. Like I love, I've started recently working with a um, girl from Darwin called Stevie Jean who had a song um, that blew up on Triple J on Earth called Hell in Every Religion. She's just turned 18. And when she came to me to work together, um, I was like, man, I can help heat the pre-production of this and I know what your record should sound like, but I'm not the guy to get the sound. So my friend down south, um, he he worked on her tracks. Mm -hmm. So me and her recorded the demos mm -hmm. um, and got some great vocals and a click track to a guitar and then I sent them down to him and he laid all the other stuff around it and yeah. we just gave him strong direction. So it's still like me producing to a degree, but I think that side of... Um, the industry is really exciting when you have a bunch of people around you you trust mm -hmm. to get jobs done that, and they can do them far better than you. Yeah. I reckon that's... Um, yeah, and then the thing is good. Yeah. It's, it doesn't have to be a vehicle for your ego. Absolutely, man. Like, it's just, you know, you should have a... If you're involved in a project and you helped make decisions along the way that made the project better that weren't about you just making sure you're really stamped your stamp on the project. But if you've just... That, to me, gives a massive smile on my face and makes me feel... Um, I just like I mean I just if I just I really care about artists I think that that's because I do do a bit of managing now I find that I really do care about artists having a good career and having a career that makes them want to keep creating art because you meet people all the time who are just they're done mm. they're they, they, maybe five years ago they were so inspired and so hungry and then along the way they've been pushed and prodded and pulled and ripped apart and put back together and they're just done and that's that's really sad, you know. It is a shame because then what there becomes more of in the there becomes less of what they could have given. Yeah. And more of these uh, people that haven't reached their full capacity to benefit the world. Absolutely, you know, like one of the most inspiration inspirational podcasts I heard was um, Mark Maron interviewing Josh Holmes and Josh Holmes from Queens of the Stone Age saying. You know, behind me in Seattle or wherever he's from is like 50 people in basements who are far more talented and far more interesting and no one will ever know about them. I hope that, I think he says something along the lines of like, I hope that some of them will be found out about. And, mm. and I feel a bit like that. I feel like part of me hopes to work on projects that make, that generate money and income for myself, projects I believe in, but I also hope that over my life, I have energy to put into special projects that are like, maybe that person would have never left Darwin if, 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 if they weren't given a platform yeah, yeah. and um, and I'm really fascinated by I mean like you know someone like Chris Keogh I love that he you know we he's a sort of Darwin legend we've, we sort of know him from back in the day with workshops but I love that even now he's creating like pillows and t-shirts out of synthesizers yeah. drawings yeah. Um, he's, still, he's still creating living and go he's still no. creating and I think that he's such an inspiration to anyone yeah. that it doesn't matter some of his art sort of this this project might this making t-shirts or synthesizers might be the thing that makes him the most famous of his whole career um, <laughs> more than the 10 heart records and 50 electronic tracks yeah. he's released i just remember when like because he taught me how to use a sampler yeah year 10 or 11 or something and it was one of those ones the screen was broken you had to get a lamp and point yeah yeah I remember. Like that. and then like a couple of years later i see that he's done with that and now he's like attending uni to learn harp and i'm like this is a dude who's about the music 100 percent, man that's, and about what it can do yeah. to you as you're learning it and yeah. investing in it and then to the community of people that are using it as yeah. something to gather around. Yeah. And then when I was asking him about living in Gove, he's like, this is the Australia that I want to live in. 100%. See, that's, he's, I mean, you need, that's another thing I, I, anyone who listens to this or, 
you know, one of my biggest advices is like find some good mentors. Yeah. Like just find like a couple and you don't have to agree with them on everything either. Like it's good to argue with your mentors, I think. But find some people who you know care about your artistic journey mm. and you know who will give you advice and you know not force you to do anything but give you really good advice and lead by example like Chris you know Chris has his life has led by example yeah, in yeah. and you know he mixes now he you know he mixed the birds record and I executive, executively produced that record with birds and Chris mixed the whole thing and he brought from Gove yeah mixed it from his laptop from Gove with his AKG 241s I think they are amazing on, his, on Ableton Live on his computer like he mixed that record and right. it's now like it's you know it's a critically acclaimed album it's been out for over a month and the reviews have come in and they're amazing and no one has once said the mix could have been better or blah 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 people have gone this album feels amazing and and the reason Birds wanted to work with Chris was he was from the NT yeah. he understood where Birds was from yeah. he understood the political side of the record but also sonically he's just really creative yeah. so to me that's hilarious and he he hasn't even put himself out there as a mix engineer, but he'll he gets mixed work all the time. Yeah, right. I'm in this position where there's a young indigenous choreographer who trained in Sydney, works in Sydney, but his mum's heritage is like Mount uh, Wollumbin, Mount Warning. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Coast. And he's asked me to come on board his project as a mentor. Yeah. Um. Somehow, like he's, but. And so I'm trying to work out, like, how can I be now most useful to this person who's on their own journey that's going to have, like, artistic tastes that I don't agree with, but, um, and also has, like, a cultural heritage and background that I'm not politically allowed to comment on in the media, like, in in a public forum, but, of course, personally between us. That's what I'm going to be commenting on the whole time, it's been, like this is what I noticed growing up around all of these people and this is what I see in your work. And, but then also talking about the difference between, like, he's got some cultural mentorship from a woman called Vicky Van Hoot, who is incredible, but um, did a work with Gary Lang last yeah, year. Yeah, nice. But then wants me, wants, like, a f- physical dance aesthetic mentorship. Yeah, cool. So... Um, yeah, in this situation where I'm like, shit, I'm, I'm still looking out for mentors. I'm still searching for mentors. And now someone's asking me to be useful for them. Yeah. And then it's like, some, sometimes what I've found is helpful is to tell them exactly what you, said, what you were saying before. Like, I'm not the man for the job. Yeah. I'm not the person for the mentor role. But I will join you on your journey and yeah. be as useful as I can. Totally. And also, you know, like, just because you're the mentor doesn't mean that suddenly all this you might be a mentor just for this small aspect of it or you might yeah, be someone yeah, who gives yeah, advice yeah. to this tiny aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we... It's funny, like, the, you know, the producers I work with, they're not my mentors, like the ones alongside me most of the time. They're not my mentors as such anymore. Even, like, Michael Honan was my mentor when I was young. I don't really feel like he's my mentor anymore. But I feel like he's still someone I want to send something to and him go, try a different snare drum maybe or that mm-hmm. snare's doing something mm-hmm. to this. Or, and, 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 you know, one of the things in this industry is being able to you know receive critical feedback receive criticism and mm. my whole thing is just because you get criticism about something doesn't mean you have to change it but <laughs> if that if their idea or their f- criticism challenges your idea enough for you to want to change it that's gold if their idea challenges your idea and your idea stands strong and you're like no nah, no nah, this is the right idea then that's also gold mm. because you've got you're like even against criticism my idea is still stands 
And there are so many reasons why, um, I mean, I've got a few people I get feedback from on stuff and I, it's honest and sometimes it's brutal and sometimes yeah. it's annoying because you get feedback and you're like, I just didn't want to hear that now. I have to think, now <laughs> yeah. I have to think if that conger is out of time and if yeah, it's, yeah, if it's yeah. affecting the swing of that it's because track. you're, what do they say? Um, the hardest thing is to not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Like yeah. you've convinced yourself that yeah. it's, you don't have to do that extra yeah. work and then yeah. someone else is like, nah. Yeah, yeah. And then I've gone in and done their change and I've pressed play and, you know, sometimes I'll go, whoa, that's so much better. Oh my God. And then sometimes I've gone, man, my idea was so much better. <laughs> their, their thing is so straight. How do you so get straight. feedback? Like, do you wait to be asked? That's the first key. Uh, I'll always give honest feedback to people, particularly in Darwin. Um, mm-hmm. I just care about. I just want. I just want people in Darwin to put out better sounding music. Yeah, yeah. I really think there's not enough people who are, are objective to their art up here. Yeah, yeah. And putting out, I think, you know. But do you, do you like do you focus on the form or the structure or their what they're bringing to it? Like, do you ever just say to someone? you're lying to me, you're not telling me the truth in your song. Like, is it on that level or is it, mm. okay, this, this snare is like writing the... It depends. If we're in the studio rhythm. together, yeah. I would go to that deeper level yeah. of like, I'm just not feeling like there's a truth in this song right now. If it's someone who like, um, you know, like if someone like Dave Garnham said, I'd love you to hear my record before it goes out and before, or uh, I'd love you to hear the mix of my record and tell me if you think it's great. I'm not going to comment on the songwriting because I know where I know where it's at at the stage. And also, he's a freaking amazing songwriter. But also, I would more comment. I'd be like, "Oh man, like I feel like it's you could." I might say something like, "I feel like the drums could be warmer," or mm-hmm. "I feel like the drums distracted me from your vocals." Get the vocals up. Mm-hmm. So you know, it can go really nerdy quickly, or it can be more about the overall feeling. Mm-hmm. That's why you know. That's why you work with producers. That's why artists should work with producers because it's someone who hopefully has a vision of the whole project. Yeah, right. Hang on, like a, a project manager producer or a music Music producer, producer. Yeah, music yeah, producer, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, that often becomes like a bit of a project manager producer. <laughs> but if someone, um, you know, if guys send me their record and it's finished, mm. I'm gonna be a lot more gentle because yeah, at that point I'm like, they've already put that out into the world. And what I would more do is like, if they then approach me, if like a hip hop dude said, oh, here's my record, you can listen to it, and I listen to it. And then he'd be like, what do you think? I would, I would probably outline the positive things I think about it, because especially if I know he's put it out to the world or she's put it out to the world. But then if they go on my next EP, I want to do something different, have you got any advice? I would probably think of the weaknesses from their previous record and yeah, talk to yeah, them yeah. about the future. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the gatekeeper of what's good either. So people have to, you know, peop- hopefully what people go is look at my track record of what I've produced mm. and worked on and go, man, that was quality. I want to ask this guy's opinion. But at the end of the day, like there's st- it, a lot of things still do come down to personal taste. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you want your record to sound unmixed and raw, then, then that's, and, and you, and, and that's what you want. And you tell me that I might listen to him and go, man, yeah, you, it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> you really achieved what you've You've nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you, do you ever make um, music that's not to be sat and listened to or to be danced around to and enjoyed? Like, do you make music for film or for shows? Or? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I've done a bit of film soundtracking. Yeah. Um, is that really different? Uh, yeah, definitely. Music for shows is probably the most different. Like, I did Matilda Allegria's um, Alter Ego, um, huge fashion parade thing. It was 23 minutes of music I had to write for it. Um, that was way different and she had like a Sin City theme and she wanted everything dark and industrial um, but it's really fun to do mm-hmm. when you've done a lot of 
sometimes boundaries are the best thing for creativity. Mm. Like just being given guidelines, and then within those guidelines, you can be as you can be as mad professor as you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really like doing that stuff. I don't want to do it all the time. But especially if I like, like you know, with Kelly from Tracks, I really like Kelly, and I really believe that she um, brings. She's got such a great vibe, and so working, you know. It's more about the people at that point for me because it's not my natural way. Like what I naturally do is make records and make beats, mm. and you know, um, that's what I first and foremost like doing, and I occasionally DJ for fun. But so because doing music for like a, a dance or theatre production or a show or a film is not my first natural instinct, I have to love the project and love the people. Yeah, you know, yeah to say yeah. yes. Well, Kelly's a legend. Yeah. So I have those two before the money. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It is, yeah, and then do you think about, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about what the piece needs or what the audience needs during that section? Because when, so when I've made music, say, for this choreographer when she was making, she was commissioned to make, her name's Lisa Wilson, she was yeah. commissioned to make a piece on Sydney Dance Company, and she asked me, and she's like, i got this blank section, I just need you to make music for it, come and watch it. Yeah. That was perfect for me because I have, because of the dance training, I feel something in response to watching people dance. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And then I make either, either I make what the dancers need so that they can do the thing really well, or I make what the audience needs to listen to so that they can finally see what the dancing is happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there was this other track where she was like, oh, there's this Nine Inch Nails soundtrack I need you to remake, oh, yeah, make yeah, a yeah. copy of, and I'm like, yeah years and millions of dollars worth of equipment and professionals and you want me to make it on Ableton and yeah <laughs> and then I made a track and then it was a good track but it wasn't of course it wasn't no that track and that's so, a hard job it's like yeah. that I find that job to be where you start that's a little bit of the factory element of music where you're churning yeah, something yeah, out yeah, like yeah. like they've made a request in the factory and the factory puts together the piece that's a little bit like working with pop musicians is like Oh, yeah, right. It's a little bit like oh, I just want I want something like Sia Chandelier I've walked in and people have gone just write me a beat like Sia Chandelier or just write me something that's on this vibe and I'm like yeah. but part of me goes well that's been done now yeah and well but yeah done the best it's kind of been done the best because it's become the thing mm -hmm. of that thing with the, something like a dance piece where they want like a Nine Inch Nails vibe I think I would still say yes to those things yeah if, I definitely I gave people. it a shot and yeah. I made a good track yeah totally but it, the track never got used because the Nine Inch Nails track was better for the thing because you made it to that that's the thing too when you're soundtracking films yeah. if they've put a placeholder in oh, yeah. of this amazing it's over, song isn't it? it's a little bit over I'm a bit like <laughs> you have you better like have you better have like the most game changing thing up yeah, your sleeve yeah, 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 because yeah. if their placeholder is like incredible yeah. they, they should probably just save the money to put that in yeah, yeah put don't, it don't, I feel like saying to filmmakers don't do it to yourself um, but my, you know my process with that stuff is like hopefully as a producer I have enough skills to kind of get the energy like yeah, yeah, yeah. when um, when Matilda asked me to do Ultra Ego with the Sin City vibe I watched Sin City and I sort of gathered like the eeriness she wanted things to build she wanted like weird samples in there mm -hmm. so but she sort of gave me free reign it's better to give the producer free reign a little bit I think I so like give them guidelines yeah. but within those guidelines let yeah. them be crazy That's and that's what I ended up doing the next time I composed for a different company you know like I, the choreographer's like, I'll make the piece and I need you to make the music for the piece. Yeah. And totally. just bring it in every day. And so the thing, the responsibility is to get heaps of music to them very early on. Yeah. So they're always working with your music in the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you just get your music better as it goes. Yeah. But what's the, so what's the better way to come in 
to work with someone instead of being like, all right, I want this see a thing. What's the better way to come in and be like, because you know you want something. What's the way to ask for the thing that you want? I mean, I think like having like wanting influences and gra- grabbing a few is is really good. But mm. I think as a producer, if someone came in and goes, okay, I want to I want to make a track like Meatloaf's um, yeah, or, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be like, well, do, for starters, do you sound like Meatloaf? Yeah. Like, that, or, 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 you know, like Beyonce's Halo. Do you, can you sing like Beyonce? Yeah. Like there's a, there's a, producers should also give artists reality checks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because just because someone can't sound like Beyonce doesn't mean that they can't do something as incredible and artistic. Yeah, yeah. Like there's no, there's no, um, I mean, they, they, they can't do something um, on the level of Beyonce because you need a lot of money. But what, <laughs> I, what I more mean is doesn't mean they can't do something that is just as satisfying creatively. Yeah. And so... What I feel is, I don't mind when people, artists come in to work with things, but I more would search for artists out that I, I love what they do. And then sort of, um, you know, it excites me when an artist is just being them. Yeah. And no matter what, every single artist in this world is different. So if I wouldn't be so, if a singer came up to me and they just were pretty much wanted to be the next Beyonce, it's sort of already, I feel like you're setting your career up to fail. Not because I'm sure someone will come along who's just as amazing as Beyonce in different ways, but it's like that whole, it's, it's sort of, you should really just think about your thing because that's the thing that people are going to relate to. They're yeah. going to believe you. It's what you can bring. It's that's what you, your asset. Absolutely. It's what you can bring. It's what you don't have to, you don't have to act or pretend. You just get to be mm. you. Unless you create a whole alter ego, which is completely fine as well. Like, mm. But I feel like in the studio when people come up to me, it's more like, I like when we're talking about the music I like descriptions of like I feel like it needs to be not too clean and we should go for this thing and the chorus should lift all that stuff's great like that mm. that sort of vibe but to go something like make me see a chandelier it's like that and there are also producers who can do that way better than me yeah 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 that's not my thing I, I, I think I I think I, I bring something that's a, a, unique to the to the track um, I can't just remake songs that well do you feel like there are things that you um, don't let yourself do that like maybe having an alter ego might help mm, I kind of feel like I try and scratch all my itches to be honest yeah. like I'm pretty if there's a project I'm fascinated like at the moment I've just been getting back into playing live bass again I've had a big break from playing live bass so mm. that's definitely something I've been wanting to do so I've just started writing a, a G-Funk record by myself that I'll figure out how to perform later mm. but my whole plan is to um play live bass for that project and have fun it's just a fun project so that's like my not worrying about anything so I think um, yeah I'm lucky like that I get to it's more like when I'm doing stuff like theatre or DJing sometimes I feel like oh my gosh I'm like a bit of a fraud I don't really know how to do this yeah 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 (laughs) you know people ask me to DJ because I have I assume I have quite good selection when it comes to music but I'm not really like a fancy DJ I don't really do massive long mixes and things like that I'm more of a selector so I think it's more around sometimes I'm doing things where I'm going should I be at home just making beats right now would that be a better way to be spending my time but I think as you get older for you and for the world yeah yeah. I think as you get older you realise that time is precious and you start being smarter with your time Mm. yep time management (laughs) (laughs) what how do you have you reached out to people have you like pick someone you're like holy shit they're what they're doing is going to work really well with what i'm trying to do um yeah definitely how do you like who do you choose and how do you reach out oh man like often people were just from discussions and it's an industry where i think a lot of people go you know you you should work with this guy and people email me and 
um, from friends' recommendations. But there are times like that Tasman Keith kid that I'm working with at the moment. I, I heard him on Triple J on Earth and just loved what he did. It was so bizarre. He was wearing this like gorilla mask dancing around his lounge room mm. and it was like a love song over a G-Funk beat and he was just mucking around and it was sounded his tone sounded so good. So I reached out to him and we've formed a friendship. We knew similar people and mm. it, it's, yeah, like I think I'm not really a hunter though. Like I'm not really like a, a, a sort of A&R hunter. Uh-huh. Um, you know, all the artists like Serena Peck, who I work with, you know, she, Katie, Katie um, heard her sing at a gig and said, you should work with this young Filipino girl, Serena Peck. Another girl, Stevie Jean, who I've been working with, same sort of thing. Like we saw her sing at like some high school battle of the bands thing four years ago. And I just went, she's amazing. So I went afterwards and said, g'day. And she goes, oh, I love Seattle. And so we start talking. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm more, yeah, they're, they're definitely, I guess I, I do reach out but it's more done in a way that's like you know with skinny fish music we work with a lot of bands from the bush and they know that we've put out a lot of quality albums and we're a label that looks after people and so you know it's more that we see bands and go hey you want to do something together let's let's do something together you know what what is what is involved in looking after people when you're working with them on a label you, you just realize when there's two things when it's working under skinny fish music with indigenous communities there's a responsibility to the whole community yeah, and to okay. the well-being of the act and to look after that cultural content with heaps of respect and integrity when it comes to preambulator records which is you know the other label we we run it sort of is more around artist development nurturing and just just sort of getting people ready for that big bad music world that's there yeah. because it can be really disheartening everything from like teaching people how to talk to sound guys and mm-hmm. you know and all those things to um, to just just having a, a career that has a long longevity like it's not you don't want to do this thing where you don't want that quick rise and quick fall thing in the industry that a lot of people think they're after mm-hmm. but it doesn't really ever work out good so I think as a label, the nurturing comes from building a family environment mm. where people know that there's a long-term plan. And that you're going to be here. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Awesome. You got to go? I do have to go soon, yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. Anything yep. you want to finish on? Any epiphanies? Any wisdom? Nah, thank you. It's been good to talk. It's good. I'll think about this conversation for the rest of the day probably, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> awesome, nice. man. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having James. me.